0: morning church, Man, it is an honor to be up here this morning uh, to bring God's word. If you don't know me, my name is Addison Hamrick. Uh, we all on staff wear multiple hats. My main hat that I wear is I get to lead our middle school and high school ministry here at the church. And it is an absolute joy as you can imagine middle schoolers and high schoolers are. Um, but, this, but up to this point in my life, as someone who has given their life to vocational ministry, I've always interacted with the next generation, the generation below me. Uh, prior to coming to Siddle Square, I was actually at Anderson University, um, serving with college students as a director of BCM there. And so for the past five or six years, however long that is, I've walked alongside the next generation of the church. I've had conversations with them, I've sought to explain and show them who Jesus is, how precious the gospel is, and and answer the questions and objections that come up among that age group. And one question in particular, it's not the only question they have, but one question comes up time and time again with this specific group, The Next Generation. Um, some of them are aware enough to actually just ask it flat out. Maybe they're just confident and they're just gonna ask it. Others ask it in more subtle ways. Um, maybe they're not aware or confident, but they all get at the heart of the question. And that question is, is following Christ worth it? Their question isn't, is Christianity true? Even though that is, there's questions about that and I actually think those questions are a little bit more easier to navigate. But their question is, is following Christ worth it? You see, they've, they've grown up in a, in a day and age where the cost of following Christ is becoming more and more difficult. They rightly recognize that following Christ means I'm gonna to have to lay down my own ambitions at times. I'm gonna to have to lay down my own dreams, my own desires, and my own wants. And so they recognize that there's a cost. But their question is, is it profitable? Is the cost worth it? You see, if if you've been around for some time, you've probably seen the landscape of our church in particularly America, the Western world, change a lot. Whereas 20 years ago, the fabric of society revolved around the church. People were involved in, it was odd for you not to be involved given the location or area that you grew up in. And that was because there was great benefit, the perceived benefit of being involved in a church. It's where you found community. It's where you could make business partnerships. There wasn't a lot of cost there, but shifts. Some things have shifted over the past 20 years to where there's not as much a perceived value of identifying with God's people. Instead of you getting opportunities to advance your own agenda or your own business or your own wants, it's actually working against that at times as our country becomes less and less Christian. And so for for many of those people, they have looked for other ways to find community, whether that's in CrossFit, whether that's in the gym, whether that's in a variety of other ways. Because they've concluded that Christ doesn't help advance their own dreams like they once did. And so if you look at the generation before me the generation after me and my current generation, we've all struggled with this question of is following Christ worth it? And this isn't a a question that's unique to America. It's not a question that's unique to the people who are alive at this time. It's one that God's people actually asked and struggled with themselves, particularly in the Old Testament at the time of the prophet Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Malachi, which is the last, book of your Bible, so if you just flip to Matthew and flip one page left, you're going to be there. We're going to be on the last page of your Old Testament. And as you flip there, as you find Malachi, I want to give you a little bit of an overview so we're not just jumping into this, not understanding what God is doing amongst his people, why God is actually sending a prophet to his people And so this book is very interesting. And as I got into it, I I grew to love it and love it more just because of the, the heart of God that's seen in it and the way that God communicates with his people. And so Malachi can actually be translated as my messenger. And so this is God sending his own messenger to his people to affirm his love for them and to rebuke them in their sin. So many commentators believe that this is the last prophetic activity in your Bible that Malachi most likely prophesied after God's people in Judah and Jerusalem returned from exile. You see, God's people were exiled because of their sin, and God has graciously brought them back into their homeland. And this is after, the Haggai and Zechariah rebuilt the temple under their leadership, it's after Ezra's preaching where the the worship in the temple had already been restructured and reformed. And it's even after Nehemiah who was the leader who brought the um, construction of the walls around the, the temple as well. And so at this point in Israel's history, all of their external circumstances and places of worship have been reconstructed. Places that have been crucial to their identity and worship have been reformed and restructured. But one thing that we'll see is that their hearts have not been reshaped and reoriented to worship and grace and truth to God. All that God did over the past thousand years prior did not change the human condition that they inherited in the garden the selfishness, the desire to live apart from God has followed them along their journey throughout the Old Testament to this point to where the, old, at the, where the Old Testament ends. So from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, we still see that the human predicament of sin is still raging. So at the end of the Old Testament, God sends this prophet to affirm his love and to rebuke his people, rebuke them of their half-hearted service of them. Despite having all their places reconstructed, they have not gone to worship God on his terms. They have cut corners. They're going through the motions. And as a result, God sends this prophet to them. And he confronts them. If you're looking at Malachi as a book as a whole, he confronts them on six different accounts. And this is really great. If you love kind of Bible literacy, how the Bible breaks down, this book breaks down so easily into six movements. So there's six confrontations or disputes that God has with his people. The central ones, so three and four, are all about how God's people are treating one another. So they're giving themselves over to unlawful divorce. They're treating the sojourner and the foreigner unjust among them. So he confronts them on that. And then disputes two and five are all about their own personal worship to God. Instead of bringing healthy lambs and sheep and livestock for sacrifices, they're now bringing sickly animals and animals that had been injured to sacrifice. And instead of tithing, which was commanded under the Mosaic covenant, they no longer are tithing to the temple. And then the first dispute or confrontation, the last dispute are all about how God's people view him. So the first is they question God's love for him. And so in that dispute, he, he affirms again that you are my chosen people. And then in this last dispute, which is the one we're gonna look at this morning, is they question if following God is worth it. And there's layers to this question that we're gonna unearth as we walk through it, but we're gonna be in Malachi chapter three, verses 13 through the end of chapter four. And so let me pray for us and we'll get into this and walk through this text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Um, We thank you um, uh, for what we have celebrated over the past few months that you, a God of love, has come in the person of Jesus to ransom and to save his people. I pray that we never get over that truth. I pray that we never get over the fact that we can encounter you through your word, that your word is true, that it's authoritative, that it it conforms us and shapes us into the image that you've called us to be. And so I pray that over the next few minutes as we walk through your word, I pray that you would identify areas in our life that we need to repent of. I pray that you will um, remind us of gospel promises and future hope that we can cling on to. And I pray that you would take this community here, Cecil Square Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and you'd make them look a little bit more like you at the end of this. So God, I pray that you would preach through me, um, that your words would be heard and received. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Malachi 3, we're going to start at verse 13. So this is God speaking to his people, confronting his people. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you have said, how have we spoken against you? And so if you've read through Malachi, which we haven't studied through it as a book, so we're jumping in, you would see that this follows the same exact pattern as the five other disputes. It starts with God confronting his people and his people immediately denying any wrong at all. He tells them, your words have been harsh against me. And that harsh against me can actually be translated as your words have overpowered me or overruled me that they have spoken out against the authority and the rule of God in their lives and to put themselves in a position of authority higher than the sovereign God. But I want you to notice something here. Notice how they respond to God's rebuke. He says, how have we spoken against you? Now on a surface reading, you might think, oh, that's an innocent question. They're just curious. They really wanna know how they've spoken against God. But based off of their past five response and the context later, it's really a question of denial. It's them putting up a, a, a barrier to receiving God's words for them. And so they deny that they've spoken out against God and this is follows the same pattern of the five disputes before it. So God confronts his people and they immediately deny it. And this denial shows us something about our hearts. right? I think this shows us three things about our hearts in this denial. That the, the God's people at the time of Malachi are no different than the way that we encounter God's word and encounter God on our own terms. One, it shows us that God's people are completely unconscious of their own sin, that they need God to actually come down and communicate and tell them where they have crossed the line. If it wasn't for God's word, we wouldn't know which, where we would cross the line and where not, that God's been gracious to show us his word to tell us that you're on the right side or the wrong side. Next, their disposition, which is something that I, uh, as someone, I don't like this about myself, but I kind of like to argue at times. This is my disposition of, their disposition is to automatically disbelieve, question and contradict God's word. And so they don't, they don't take it and receive it humbly. They contradict it and they say that we haven't done this. And then last, it also shows that since this is the sixth dispute that God's people are really slow to learn. Right, I bet uh Camille and I will be parents in the coming months, which is going to be a blast. And I'm sure as parents, you are just when you raise your kids, you're like, Man, you're so slow to learn, but it's, it's the joy of parenthood, I'm sure. Um, and we will get to experience that first time, and I'll be able to see myself more accurately as a as center of God, but it'll be, it'll be fun. Um they have, so they've gone through the same exercise five other times of God, yet they still believe that they have done nothing wrong. They tell them again and again, and they just deny and contradict and disbelieve God's word. Yet despite their blindness and their hardness of heart, God continues to pursue his people. And the following verses here are proof that God has not given up on his people. That the following verses here, even though they can be harsh at times, show the heart of God towards his people. And so look at verses 14 through 15. And notice how God keeps the receipts. They ain't gonna get away from this one. Verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Now, starting in this verse, the next two verses, we're gonna see layers to their questions that they're asking. And with each question or assertion that they're asking is pulling back a layer to reveal the people's true heart and true motivation and true question that they're asking God. And this first one is, Are they essentially asking, is following God worth it? They said, it is vain to serve God. They look around and they see the arrogant prospering. They see people who put God to the test walk away unharmed. And they're probably looking at their lives and viewing themselves as serving God and they don't see any measurable results of God's blessing on their life. Instead, the people that shouldn't be blessed are the ones who are receiving blessing in their own eyes. It would be easier and potentially more profitable for us to keep his for us not to keep his commands in their minds god has not come through but i want you to notice a really unique question here and it's in verse 14 it says what is the profit of our keeping his charge now can we just appreciate how american that question is like what's the profit like hey, what's our what's our return on investment here but it reveals Something so much about their heart and their motivation of their service to God. It really reveals, it shows us a glimpse of their heart and motivations. It shows us that their obedience to God was fundamentally focused on what they could get out of it. That their obedience to God wasn't actually God-honoring, it was self-serving and self-focused of I'm doing this in order to get something out of it. It reveals that their service to God was actually not for God at all, but for themselves. And it's something that, this is the dangerous part, it's something that you would never notice on the surface. That you are seeing these people do all this activity. You're seeing these people in their own minds serving God, but their hearts are actually serving themselves. And that's a danger for all of us who follow after Christ. That in our pursuit or in our a physical serving of God, we are actually doing it out of a motivation to serve our own self and our own agenda. It's possible to give the appearance that we are serving Christ when in reality, our motivation is to serve ourselves. And so this happened, I can think of hundreds and countless times that this has been true of my life, but one time in particular that stands out amongst the others is when I was in college, I worked at a summer camp called Windshaped Camps for Communities. And so this was an awesome camp. I loved my experience there. If you know anything about Winshape Camps for Communities, we would travel to different communities each week in order to put on a day camp experience for them, to share Christ with them, to serve the community, and all by partnering with Christian Chicken Chick-fil-A. So it was, it was a great kind of partnership there. Um, but Winshape had extremely high standards of excellence because they actually fell under the same umbrella as Chick-fil-A. And so if you've been into a Chick-fil-A, worked at Chick-fil-A, you know what Chick-fil-A expects of their workers. And this is what this camp expected of us. And there's nothing wrong with expecting excellence, but with my own sinful heart there, it was a temptation um, to do things in order to receive a reward or to receive a profit. And so each and every single week, they'd have this thing called the recipe button. It's just a little thing of aluminum that says, I cooked the recipe. The recipe is just their criteria of like grading if you did a good job. So they have different parts of the recipe. But it's essentially a award that you would get if you were the best staffer that week. And it was voted on by your other staffers and your other camp staffers and all those things. And so me being a highly driven person, I was like, I want that aluminum button like more than anything else. I want this aluminum button more than anything else in the world. And so I would bust my tail. I would work so hard to impress my camp staffers. Man, I would share the gospel with so many kids. I would, I would pick up trash. I would serve in so many different areas, all to win this button. Because with this button also comes opportunities to be promoted later. It comes, if you come back at staff, you could have a higher position and higher pay and more status and all these other things, which is what I craved in the moment. But on the surface, it just looked like Addison was serving God's people and he did it with joy. But each and every single week when I didn't get awarded that button, I just remembered how miserable I was. I I imagined how mad I was that they didn't see how hard I was working that they didn't want, they wanted, they thought someone else did a better job than me. That person, I saw that person, that person was walking. You're not allowed to walk if you work for Winshape Games. You got to be running. I ran everywhere. How did they get the button over me? And all this time, it was really me, if I unwrapped it, I was wondering if God noticed me, if God approved of my work. And I was angry that I wasn't getting rewarded for it because you see that I was being self-centered and it was hard for me to cope with a God who wouldn't serve me the way that I wanted to be served. And I think that's what we see here in these way that their obedience is self-centered. They expect God to serve them in the way that they want to be served. But what's interesting is that up to this point in Malachi, God has progressively shown his people that their service, their obedience, their worship to him has actually not been worship or obedience at all. So he's confronted them time and time again of their half-hearted service. You see, they have served God, but they serve God on their own terms. Instead of bringing healthy livestock to sacrifice with, they would bring ones that were sickly and injured, ones that don't cost them anything to sacrifice. Instead of representing God's covenant faithfulness in their marriage, they started to seek unlawful divorces. Instead of tithing to the temple, they started to keep their money to themselves. Instead of treating justly the people, their hired hands or the sojourners among them, they treated them unjustly. You see, time and time again, God has progressively shown them that they're not worshiping him on his terms. In that half-hearted worship to God, God views as no worship at all. That he has consistently shown them that acceptable worship as God is when we come to God, not on our terms, but on the terms that he laid out through his word. It's not enough to be sincere in your worship. Your worship must also be guided and led by how God has laid it out in his word. Worship is a response to the glory and the goodness of God. It's not a way that you and I coerce God to get a good return. And so now to this next layer that we see with their question, it continues to pull back what question they're really asking. And so we see here in verse, still in verse 14, it says, what is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of the host? So here, they're not questioning as God, if following God is worth it. They're questioning, does God see me? Does God notice me? They are said to walk in mourning before the Lord of hosts. This was a self-denying aspect of worship where you would completely remove yourselves from all the things that bring you pleasure. You would put yourselves in uncomfortable situations. You would rub dirt and ash over your body and it would be impossible for someone to look at you and not notice you because of the degree through which you self-denied yourself. And so they've done all of this and it's a strong visible picture for these people. And they essentially make the conclusion that nothing makes a difference. God doesn't notice us, God doesn't listen to us, which brings us to the final layer of their assertion to God is, is God just? Is God fair? And so you, you see here in the end of 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Doesn't look a lot like a fair or just God for the arrogant to go unpunished and for God's people to sit here and to suffer without prosperity in their minds. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to this test, which means that these people did something purposely to evoke a response from God and they left unharmed. It seems on the surface that God is more gracious and generous to the arrogant than he is his own covenant people. But it's important to remember one truth here. And it's a truth that if it wasn't true, all of us would be left without hope. And that is that God is patient with sinners. God is patient with sinners. We see this elsewhere throughout scripture. He does not strike us down the moment that we sin, but in his patience, he allows us countless opportunities to turn to him to repent and to receive the forgiveness that he offers through his sons. But this patience, church, is also risky because with this patience, we might begin to creep into this mindset that sin doesn't matter we see other people sin and get away from it so we begin to presume upon the riches and kindness of god that's meant to lead us to repentance but we presume that because these people aren't receiving consequences for their sin then i won't either and then this is how a community of sin spreads amongst a church and amongst a people is that we presume upon the riches and the kindness of god forgetting that that kindness is meant to lead us into repentance. But also, could it be that God letting them get away with their sin for a time is its own form of punishment? That in some ways, the pursuit of sin brings about its own judgment and its own punishment. We can't hash out all of those today But if you've walked for Jesus with some time and you've given your life, if you've given part of your life to the pursuit of sin, I'm sure you can point to moments and moments and moments where you received a consequence or a punishment of that sin. And the same thing is true here that God, in some ways, letting them go unpunished for a time is actually a punishment within itself. And so taking all this as a whole as we examine these people there's a real danger here for us and there's a real danger here for me and that is that we would evaluate our faith on whether or not it produces prosperity in our lives on whether or not it makes our life better as a whole so church how contingent is your faith on its profitability how contingent is your faith on does it work How much of your involvement in this body is what you can personally get out of it? How do we fight these subtle ways to doubt God's goodness? How do we move our hearts to believing that following Christ is worth it when what we see with our eyes and what we experience personally tell us a different story? And so that's what we're gonna get into in verses 16 through 18. We're gonna see this faithful remnant of God's people, which is just a beautiful picture here says in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Up until this point in Malachi, this is the first positive response of God's people to his rebuke. This is the only one that's captured in this book and it's this faithful remnant of God's people. Up to this point, they were all negative. They doubted God's word. They threw it to the side. But as with all times and among all people, there is a faithful remnant amongst God's people. Those who fear the Lord and those who respond to his rebukes and his instructions with humility and repentance. Now I want you to notice something about their response that you can miss if you just quickly read it but I think it's crucial for you and me as we fight this same internal battle. Notice what the faithful remnant did. They gathered and they spoke to one another. An ordinary means of God's grace, of gathering with the faithful remnant, of speaking to one another, produced in them a fear of the Lord and sustained them despite what the majority of their contemporaries were saying or doing. When you and I gather here at 328 Meeting Street, we communicate something very particular. When you and I gather, we communicate that following Christ is worth it. When you and I gather, we communicate that God hears us and that God loves us. When we gather, we communicate that God's word can be trusted and that God can be trusted. Things that you're not gonna hear outside of this gathering. Camille and I experienced this firsthand when we lived in Anderson. So when we were up there working with college students, I had to accept, take on a a second job in order to provide for our family. And so at the time, I was a night shift supervisor at UPS. It uh, was really rough. Uh, We'd go in to work at midnight and get off about eight or 9 a.m. right when Camille would leave for work. So I'd miss her then, take a three-hour nap, go meet with college students for five hours on campus. But then me and Camille would have two hours with each other, five to seven, where we'd cook dinner and eat together, and then I would go to sleep. We did this for a year and a half of our first year of marriage, we experienced this. Later, I started this job the week after we got back from our honeymoon. So there wasn't anything that we knew different, but we got to see each other two hours a day for a year and a half. And as we walked through this, We ask the question multiple times, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Why does it seem easier for other people? Why is it so difficult and hard for us? God, we're being faithful and obedient to the assignment that you gave us, and this is how you repay us, is I only get to see my wife for two hours a day. And even then, it's just cooking meals and cleaning the dishes and then going to bed. Like, why is this the hand that we were dealt? But each and every week we would gather with our church, Renewal Church of Anderson. It's our church body in Anderson. We would gather, we would sing songs of praise. We would sit under God's word. We would have conversations with people who loved us and knew us. And week by week, we were sustained. Week by week, we were reminded that following Christ is worth it. And it wasn't this mountaintop experience. It was the seemingly ordinary, seemingly insignificant gathering of God's people that week by week gave us enough to get to the next week and reminded us that God loves us, God sees us, and it's worth it to be obedient to Christ. And that's what we get to do for each other here. A lot of us don't maybe not know what you're walking into this place with. Maybe you're on the edge of, of giving up and saying this isn't worth it. You can be the means by which God sustains another believer in Christ through your singing, through your encouragement, and through your gathering. So just let's not forsake this gathering because it's so significant to us reaching the finish line. But also notice what God is doing while the people are gathering. Now the author shifts from his focus on the people but to focus on God and his response. He says... And the Lord paid attention, and he heard them, and he, and he heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared his, his, God and his name. He watched them closely. He heard them. The very thing that the people of God were questioning in the verses prior is what God was doing to the faithful remnant. The majority questioned if God even noticed them, and the answer is undoubtedly yes. Do not mistake God's patience towards you as indifference towards you. And not only does God pay attention and listen, the book tells us that a book of remembrance was written before the Lord. And a lot of, uh, there's some commentators who like to link this book to the Book of Life, which is um, communicated all throughout the Old and New Testament. The assumption here is that God either wrote the book or either commissioned the scroll to be written. However, I'm persuaded elsewhere. I think the more likely scenario is that the people who were faithful set out to enlist themselves and to to write their names on a written covenant of trust to obey God despite what their contemporaries are doing. It was a renewal of covenant before God of the people of God. They were renewing their covenant. It was a step of obedience. It was a step to mark them out from the rest. And notice what God says about them. It says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Not only does God see them and hear them, he claims them as his own. The faithful remnant is the property of the Lord of hosts. And he has promised that there will be a day when they will be included in his treasured possession. And this treasured possession is, is introduced in Exodus nineteen five through six, where God tells his people in the wilderness. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you realize how incredible this promise is for you and me? that God considers you and I his treasured possession, not based off of our obedience, not based off of our faithfulness, but based off of the obedience of another, Jesus Christ. That the God of the universe who owns all things, who created all things, who sustains all things, looks at us and says, you are my treasured possession. He includes us in his life, not as servants, but as sons. He spares us as a father does a son. And this is our reward. We get to share in the goodness and glory and greatness of our God for all of eternity. Because God has claimed you. These are certainties. These are promises that we cling on to as Christians. We will experience them in fuller ways in the days to come. But church, remember, because this is true, that every step of obedience that you take, no matter how large or no matter how small, is preparing you for this day when Christ will come and claim you as his treasured possession. It's not worthless. It's doing something in you, even if you're unaware of what it's doing. I think John Piper says, I probably get the the phrase wrong, but he says, God is doing over a thousand things at your life at any moment, and you're only aware of one or two of them. And so the little steps of obedience that you are taking big or small, God is doing something in your heart to prepare you for this day when he will claim you once and for all as his treasured possession. It's producing in you the endurance, to finish the race set before you, and it's a light that shines and draws others into the immeasurable grace that God offers to all people. And it's pleasing to your heavenly father. But notice now how he shifts in verse 18 to the fate of the arrogant. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. After showing the reward for obedience, in keeping his covenant, God now shifts his focus to the wicked and the arrogant. Church, here is the fate of the people that God's people envied in verses 14 through 15. God's people envied the arrogant. He considered them blessed. But now look at what blessed means for them. On this day, no one will be able to question God's judgment. God will be perfectly f- fair and just in his distinction between the righteous and the wicked. It will be crystal clear. There will not be a moment of questioning about it. It's a distinction between those who serve God and those who do not serve God, between those who fear God and those who do not fear God. And the difference between the righteous and the wicked here is not how the people on earth perceive them. People on earth perceive them as blessed, but it's how God treats them in the end. If you remember, this is one of the accusations of the people of God given in the the verses that we read above, that in their minds, the distinction was off. The arrogant were prospering. They they should have been receiving the blessing. But now God is writing this for their clarity. Now God will divide once and for all. There'll be no confusion between who is blessed and who is not. On this day, nobody will be able to say, verse Sixteen, he says, it is vain to serve God, or verse verse 13, it's vain to serve God what profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning for the Lord. For now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Nobody on this day will be able to accurately say those words. Then you go down verse one of chapter four, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and the evildoers will stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Again, the arrogant people previously envied by God's people will now be severely judged for their arrogance and for living a life apart from the the guidance and rule of God in their life. It will be complete and utter destruction. There'll be no root, no branch left and it is all-encompassing. Nobody escapes. Verse two, but for you, church, you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healings in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, and on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So not only will the arrogant be punished, but the faithful will be vindicated by God. Most biblical scholars actually believe this to be a prophecy of the coming Christ, of the coming Messiah who, who has bought forgiveness for you and me on the cross, who has taken this very wrath that is, is will be laid upon the arrogant and the evil doers. He placed it on himself so that you and I might be forgiven. So that if we place our trust in Jesus Christ and his atoning work for our sins, then we can be included in this faithful remnant and we can be included in this blessing. When the Lord communicates that healing will be in his wings, this likely refers to the sun's rays that just as the sun touches everything on the earth, that will be the expansiveness of God's restoration and healing in the world on this day. That every moment of despair, sadness, and suffering that you experience in this fallen world will be healed for good. Now, this book might end with, a, with judgment, but tucked in the last few verses of this book is a great promise and a great hope for all of us. So let's read along, it says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And in verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In verse five, God promises to send a prophet, Elijah. He will turn the hearts of his people. If you flip back one page at chapter three, this is also prophesied as well, that chapter three, verse one, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. That God is sending somebody to prepare the way for their ultimate salvation. And what's so great is that the Old Testament ends like this proclaiming that Elijah, a prophet, is coming. And if you flip one page to your right, you're in the gospels. And if, it's not structured this way, but if Luke was the first gospel in your Bible, you would immediately see the account of John the Baptist being born. After 400 years of silence, the one that God promised this prophet to come was born to set the stage for Jesus Christ. And if you turn to Matthew chapter three, the first words out of this prophet's mouth, in verse two, chapter three, is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if I could sum up the entire book of Malachi for you, it would be that very word, repent. Repent. The question for you and I today is will we turn to God? Will we turn to God and repent of the ways in which we've tried to live our lives apart from God? Will return to God and repent of the ways that we were presumably serving God. In reality, we were serving our own interests and our own agendas. Will you receive his words this morning with a soft and open heart? Will you repent of your sins and turn to the one true God, the God who has graciously come in the flesh to ransom you and to save you? the God who is always faithful to his promises, the God who welcomes you as a son and as a daughter, as his treasured possession. Will you turn to this God? And if you do, if you turn to this God, you will forever and always be claimed by him, that nothing in this world will take that certainty away, that no matter what happens in this life, that you will be forever his treasured possession and receive the the greatness of his forgiveness in his grace. If that's you this morning, if you wanna to talk to somebody about what it means to turn to God, I'd, I'll be happy to talk to you, I'll be upfront. Other people who are wearing um, the, the badges would ha- love to have that conversation here today. But that is the message of Malachi, is to repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that despite our own blindness and our own sin, that you have continued to pursue us, that you continue to redeem people every day as your sons and your daughters. And because of what you have done and will do, we know that every step of obedience in this life is worth it. That despite what we see with our eyes or even experience personally, we know that you are just, God, that your people will be vindicated. God, that we have a home that is secure and safe for us to go to. So God, we thank you for this church. We thank you of the ways that you will use this church to remind us that following Christ is worth it. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.